Show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where Americans seem to be largely united in response to a terrible tragedy and a hideous crime. Talking about the uh, death of Tyree Nichols, the murder of Tyree Nichols, the cops who beat him to death, uh, literally, are uh, all indicted for second-degree murder. And uh, what's amazing is that Americans seem to agree about this. Uh, there's a new YouGov poll out today that shows that uh, by a margin of 72%, uh, 71% uh, say that the use of force against Tyree Nichols was inappropriate. One thing that is shocking to me is there are 8% of you out there who think it was appropriate to beat this uh, young individual to death. What do we learn from this? And where do we go? And how do we draw any benefit at all from uh, the lessons of the Tyree Nichols tragedy? We have the great opportunity to speak about that with one of the leading, uh, most prominent civil rights leaders in America, former president of the NAACP. He is now the executive director of Sierra Club. He is the, also the author of the uh, quite wonderful new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, which is a, a vivid anecdotes about his life, his friends, his family, and uh, some words of hope about the American experience. Uh, ben, uh, it's great to speak to you again. Oh, thank you, Michael. Always good, to, always good to be with you. And I'm sure, like most Americans, you had an emotional response to the funeral yesterday. There was, um, it seemed to me, a very effective and moving speech by Al Sharpton, and uh, who <laughs> does not always give speeches that move me, but he did this time. Uh, what do we take away from this? And how do we use this this terrible development to make some further progress in this country? You know, I think we need to be real honest about uh, what we saw and about what it says about public safety and ultimately where it leads us to, you know, in, in making all of us more safe. And what we saw was, was several black officers kill a black man who they um, uh, felt wasn't obeying them or they otherwise were angry. The I think it's a low point for anybody who thought that just changing the, compl the complexion of police officers would change the experience of black people. And for that matter, many Americans have with uh, police. Abuse of policing is a much wider problem uh, in this country. Um, and what it really underscores at home is that what we're dealing with when it comes to, to specifically the people being killed by the police uh, is an authoritarian approach to law enforcement that uh, has its roots in the colonial history of this country and that can only really be dealt with 
but dealing by, frankly, changing how we recruit. Police departments that specifically test for authoritarian personality types amongst people applying to be police officers have found that as many as three out of four applicants are dangerously authoritarian, the type of people who, could, who, who might just kill somebody simply because that person doesn't do what they tell them to do. Um, and that, uh, you know, whereas that personality is less than 10% of the American people, it can be three quarters of the people who you know, apply to a local police department. And so why is that uh, important? Well, it turns out that when you, uh, when sociologists dig into two great kind of uh, social biases, if you will, amongst police officers, racism uh, and you know, bias towards being authoritarian, the officers who test very low on implicit bias who appear to be racist but are high, test high in authoritarianism are much more likely to kill somebody. Except, can we who, can we interject here? Yeah. Because I think it's very important yeah. to keep to keep in mind uh, when you're talking about uh, the authoritarian personalities of police officers and the dangers that police officers represent. It's extraordinarily rare for us civilians to be killed by police officers. We're we're a nation that has. Uh, more than 20,000 murders a year, homicides a year. And the percentage of those homicides that uh, even with the broadest uh, stroke that you want, it's a tiny percentage uh, that are committed by officers. The Washington Post has computed that uh, last year, 2022, the number of unarmed black Americans who were killed in encounters with police was seven. And this with an estimate of about 60 million contacts every year between civilians and police officers. So again, it's, it's horrifying when something this, this happens, but you agree, don't you, that this is exceptionally rare? Well, the uh, it depends on what context. If you measure it simply against uh, stops by Americans, if you assume that there's an, an you know an, ex, an acceptable number, um, no, there's no the acceptable that you, number. Dude. You're right. So then, then you know then it, then when you compare it to other police forces around the the globe, uh, uh, let alone to what an acceptable number might be, which would be zero. You just, you just keep coming back to that it's it's just way too high. And then when you look at the, the complaints of abuse across the country, um, if you look at suspicious killings by over time, there I think are are far you know there are far more than anybody would say is acceptable. There are far more than you see in 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 other Western nations. Um, and there is a real problem with the with frankly how the poor are policed. And how black folks are uh, uh, policed. Okay, but you're talking about other Western thing, nations, yeah. Ben. What what nation do you think uh, has the most effective and safest policing? Well, what I would tell you is this: the you know you can measure that multiple ways. One way one way to 
measure that is, is who has the best trained officers and who has the officers that are best trained at de-escalating force. In some American cities where there have been multiple lawsuits that have forced the courts to set standards for training, like New York, uh, and uh, in most Western countries, uh, the standard is that people are trained in de-escalation every six months. Um, that would be England, for instance, where most officers don't carry guns. In the U.S., where every single jurisdiction is allowed to set its own standards for training. The most common standard is you are trained one day at the academy, period. You mean trained in de-escalation? No, trained in use of force and de-escalation. So, um, you know, when to use your voice, when to use, you know, physical restraint, when to use your nightstick, when to use your taser, when to use your gun, that that's one day. And, it, and the reality is that, first of all, the training is insufficient. And then secondly, whatever training is done is quickly superseded in officers' minds by what they're taught when they, you know, when they're actually get there on the job when they actually get their on-the-job training. You know, Denzel Washington once made a movie about that. It was called Training Day. Right, right. Uh, he won an Oscar for it. Uh, we will be right back with Ben Jealous, his book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. It's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back. that I enjoy talking to Ben Jealous, uh, former director of the NAACP. He is uh, now the executive director of uh, the Sierra Club, which is a, uh, a different uh, organization, obviously very different, uh, one of America's leading conservation and environment forces. Uh, but I was mentioning just uh, a moment ago that one of the things that I appreciate is finding out stuff that I didn't know that's somewhat surprising. We're talking off the air about Al Sharpton and uh, his triumphant speech uh, yesterday, moving speech at the funeral for Tyree Nichols. And it turns out Al Sharpton has a cousin that he doesn't usually talk about. And, uh, and again, and this is one of the themes of Ben Jealous's book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, about his own cousins. And yes, he's cousins to Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jefferson and Dick Cheney. But, okay, who's who's Al Sharpton's surprising cousin? Strom Thurmond. Uh, Strom Thurmond has a maternal uncle named uh, Al Sharpton. Uh, and he and the... Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, apparently both named for the for the same common ancestor. And I was with uh, I was with Marley Evers uh, at the NAACP convention. I guess it was 2000. A team was running for president. We were backstage, and she leaned over to him and said, "You know, John, my my people come off the old McCain plantation in West Point, Mississippi." He said, and John kind of looked at her and said, "That's right, John. I'm pretty sure that we're cousins." <laughs> And, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to – they were somehow connected to Merle Evers. She's a pretty regal person. Uh, and obviously, maybe, you know, she and her late husband, who's assassinated Meg Evers, made a lot of sacrifices to make our country a lot better for all of us. Uh, John McCain was bleary running for president. 
And I think uh, that's not what he was expecting when he showed up at the NAACP convention. So, you know, that's just the reality of the South is that names, names uh, you know, denote geography. They also denote lineage. And, you know, the bloodlines have been mixed for a very, very long time between the descendants of uh, slave owners and the descendants of of slaves. You know, we're, we all, you know, we often ultimately – uh, tend to you know descend from the same from the same plantation. Well, I, I know, I know, and it's something that he spoke about is Barack Obama uh, on his mother's side of the family uh, was descended from slave owners. Yeah, 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 and I on my on my black mother's side. I mean, we we descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandma, for instance, uh, and we just descend from a, from a man named Theodric Bland who one of the founding fathers of Virginia and kind of through him and that, and that family that were cousins to Robert E. Lee, which, you know, the, the part that really shocked me there, Michael, was um, realizing that my grandmother's grandfather, who would go, who was born a slave, went on to, to lead, to lead the Republican party in Virginia um, in the post reconstruction, pre Jim Crow kind of moment. Um, and uh, that he would have known it too. And I think that you know, for uh, a man to emerge from slavery at 17 and know that he was cousins to Robert E. Lee probably uh, gave him some of his hubris, you know, for believing that he too could could lead and taking on leadership roles as, as quickly as he did. Okay, it is Black History Month, and uh, people will get a different perspective on Black Black history from your book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free. Uh, what do you think in this month, this moment in our history in particular, that we ought to take away from this national commemoration that I do think has been increasingly significant, increasing the amount of attention that it draws? What do we need as a nation to learn? Well, you know, I think that we... Um, as a nation, uh, it, one, it, it reminds us that, uh, you know, greatness comes in all colors and great contributions have been made people of all colors in this country. And two, it reminds us that, um, you know, the, the kind of very American notion uh, that there were different human races, uh, just what, what fallacy that was. Um, the you know race changed in America in the context of the New World and colonialism in the 1700s. Before that, it was uh, a European word for tribe. After that, uh, it was this basically an, an American or a New World notion uh, of a color caste system denoting multiple human races, including the subhuman uh, Negro. Um, what, you know, great, you know, horrible injustice is done based on that theory, frankly, right up through uh, the NFL announcing last year that they had been uh, discounting the presumptive IQ of black players uh, right up until last year. So that if a black, former black player showed up saying that they had a traumatic brain injury, their IQ was tested as part of the evidence of that, they would actually an, an easier bar for a white player to clear to get compensation for a traumatic brain injury because they were presumed to have had a higher starting I IQ and a, and a tougher bar for black players because they were presumed to have a lower starting IQ. 
simply based on their color. And, you know, so, so it's um, uh, Black History Month, I think, is a bold reminder uh, when you look at the heroes and you look at the accomplishments from the black community, uh, you know, that our country has been built by people of all colors and that we're, you know, we're all ultimately equal in our, in our greatness and in our capacity to contribute to our, to our great country. And uh, when you talk about contributing to the country, uh, we could use some contributions of uh, new leadership, don't you think, in our political sphere, uh, maybe even people who aren't octogenarians? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, across the board, I think that's true. I think one of the things that the conservative movement has done has done well, honestly, is to be aggressive about bringing, you know, uh, younger generations on onto the court, um, you know, younger generations uh, up in politics. Um, I do wish, you know, that the Democrats would learn from Republicans on both those uh, spheres. We tend to, you know, see politics as a line and people wait their turn. I don't think that's um, that that always serves our country best. The reality is that. We're handing off a lot to young people, and you know they they deserve to be fully involved in charting the course for this country. Well, sure. I mean, and and again, we just hear about uh, uh, Senator Feinstein in California. If she does run for re-election, which she says she won't even decide until next year, she'd be ninety-one, running for a six-year Senate term, which may uh, be the. <laughs> The Ultimate Triumph of Optimism Over Experience. Uh, the book by Ben Jealous, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. Uh, ben, always good to talk to you. We will uh, be right back on The Medved Show, maybe trying to make something about the surprising dependence of millennials on their parents' funding. More on that coming up on The Medved Show politics to pop culture and from coast to coast this is the michael medved show show that's really inappropriate and on the michael medved show one of the uh, reasons that i i find it so fascinating that uh there's this new piece that's in the hill and uh, about a new survey that shows that uh, 40% of all millennials, that means people from the age 26 at the youngest up to the age of 41, that 40% of those people have their parents paying at least one monthly bill. It's extraordinary. Uh, the... Um, 18, uh, 18% pay for auto insurance, and this is for young people up to the age of 41, 16% for car payments. Um, Americans have blurred the line between childhood and adulthood, they write in uh, The Hill. Young adults are staying in school longer and graduating with ever larger loads of student loan debt. They're postponing marriage and first home purchase as they labor to dig themselves out. I, I think that's optimistic. Uh, and, and again, the idea that people now expect the government to pay that student loan debt, 
that the young people and their parents have taken out. I mean, it's it's one of those things that when you actually look at these numbers, the Biden program, which means to tax people who are at the height of their product productivity and their work lives, to tax them in order to repay people who may have failed at their college experiments or college attempts, because that's one of the worst statistics in our country right now, is the idea that so few of the people who start college and university actually finish it. And again, given the amount of parental help that uh, young people are getting, the uh, the survey involved here that they describe in the Hill, which is from one poll uh, uh, survey association, they uh, asked millennials why parents covered some of their expenses. The uh, largest group, 30%, chose the response, they haven't told me to pay them myself. <laughs> Just seems funny. Another 26% said it was cheaper to stay on their parents' tab. Well, cheaper for whom exactly? A smaller group said because they are financially comfortable. Only 12% said they could not afford to pay for the bills themselves. Okay, this is, uh, comes together with a Pew Research study that they cite that found that a majority of American adults believe parents do too much for their adult children. Pew also found that two-thirds of American adults think children should be financially independent by 22. Yet only one quarter of adults actually achieve financial independence by that age, meaning that they don't count on regular money from their parents. And by the way, if you're out there and say, well, that's not true of my kids, you should consider yourself very lucky or indeed uh, blessed. Uh, two emails that came in, one from Marsha in Olympia, Washington. She said, suggestion to ours, meaning Republicans, don't suggest specific budget cuts ask for across-the-board percentage cuts, maybe 2%. Anyone with experience in government knows that could be done without undue disruption. Look, I think that's a good idea, and it's a, it's a very sensible idea, but the one thing that would you'd need to do to, to get that accepted to people is to excerpt from that 2% cut national security, and our defense spending, and also spending on Social Security and Medicare. Because the one thing that has worked for Democrats forever is to terrify people about Social Security that people believe, and, and they have reason to believe that, has been, you've been paying in your entire working life, and people believe that it's their money when actually part of what it reflects is interest in effect because uh, the you will get paid back if you have a decent chance at longevity. You'll get paid back more in your Social Security and Medicare than you will have put away during your working life to 
uh, afford it. But a saying for that for the rest of the very complicated federal budget, just every department a two percent cut, and Martian Olympia, I, I think you're right that that is one of those things that most government bureaucrats would say. Yes, we could manage that, and it would get us much closer to getting our deficits under control. Wouldn't bring us there. Not close. Jerry in Woodenville writes in, Michael, voting is a right, not a responsibility. This is on the issue we discussed with E.J. Dion earlier this week, the issue of uh, the United States going the way of Australia. And going the way of Australia, Australia is only the most famous case. There are about 24 countries around the world, some of them not admirable democracies that make a requirement that you vote where it's considered to be an obligation and a duty, not simply a right. But Jerry and Woodenville writes, voting is a right, not a responsibility. The founders had it right. You should have to be a landowner to be able to vote. Jerry, <laughs> do, you, do you really believe that? Uh, you shouldn't have, you should have skin in the game. Okay. If you have skin in the game, because even if you're a renter somewhere, you are still impacted by paying taxes, by all of the laws that are made to regulate your behavior, to regulate your business that impact you. And to say that you need to own land to vote, it's actually considered there are very few historians who believe that the changes in the Jacksonian era in the 1830s and 40s, that the changes that took away those landowning requirements uh, were a mistake. He goes on, he says, we have far too many who have discovered they can vote themselves money from the Treasury. I don't want people voting who know nothing about what they are voting on. When it comes to, you're contradicting yourself, Jerry, a little bit, because what you're saying is they don't know anything about what they're voting on, but they'll know about voting themselves money. Uh, the the idea that, that people should actually be better prepared, that civics should be more uh, affirmatively taught, I think that's a correct idea. You said, I've spent a lifetime working to contribute to a system. Too many want to leech on. And again, this was the basic idea of the very successful welfare reform that the Republicans finally got through Congress and they got President Clinton to sign in 1996. And that welfare reform was based on the idea that people did not ideally want to leech on uh, the government. There's some who do. But for the most part, people look for gainful employment, and the whole idea of work, not welfare, has been a successful message for conservatives because it is what most people actually want. Arthur Brooks, who has been on this show many times, writes about research that shows that when it comes to human happiness, what... Um, what, what makes a big contribution to human happiness is not people getting money, it's people earning money. And that feeling of working for it and earning it is part of national satisfaction. 
Uh, there are more states that are offering, or at least considering, a universal free lunch. Good idea, right idea. We'll get to it on the Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. That is really extreme. Michael Medved show with our crowd. They have a quick slogan: uh, "Invest alongside venture capitalists, VCs," and you can join for free. Hearing about some of the investment opportunities in high tech, uh, our crowd's experienced investment teams identify and conduct rigorous research on thousands of companies and venture funds to tap into cutting-edge opportunities across sectors and stages and nations of the globe. Um, most of their nation, most of their new ventures are located in Israel, but uh, about almost half of them here in the United States. Uh, join our crowd to access these opportunities to invest Along crowd, alongside our crowd and other VCs, there is no charge. Just go click on the uh, Our Crowd sign. It's a little blue background, white letters, at uh, michaelmedved.com. And uh, speaking of uh, some of the news from the Middle East, there was a remarkable interview, and remarkable not in a good way, but worthy of remarking about uh, on Sky News, the Palestinian ambassador to the United Kingdom had this to say about a synagogue shooting where a 21-year-old shooter who lost his life started firing at people as they were going home from uh, services. Uh, this is clip four. 15-year-old boy kills seven Israelis, including a newly married couple helping the injured, shot outside a synagogue on Holocaust Memorial Day. Do you condemn that? Every life lost is absolutely a tragedy. And no one works for a non-violent solution to this more than us. Do you condemn it? No, I condemn the origin of all this. That's what needs to be So you condemned. don't condemn that action? We can sit here until the morning to talk about condemnation. We must stop the cycle of violence. That's what we need to do. And we must visit the root cause of this violence. For many, many years, we have been, and media is guilty of that, is trying to draw some parallels, is, is failing to focus on the actual cause of all this. Okay, again, the refusal to condemn a terrorist shooting and a shooting of innocent people, and by the way, the, the question posed that it was a 15-year-old boy. It wasn't a 15-year-old boy. It was a 21-year-old young man. And, uh, and a young man who had been steeped in some of the dehumanization and profound anti-Semitism that is part of the, the Palestinian Authority's uh, biggest failing. Their biggest failing being that they continue with the propaganda and the rewards and the celebrations for terrorist killing. Uh, the um, Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, was together with Jake Tapper on CNN, and he was asked about prospects for peace. Uh, clip one. 
think we can get hung up on this, and we have in the past. People said, you know, unless you resolve this issue and unless you have peace with the Palestinians, you're not going to have a broader peace with the Arab world. So for 25 years, the Palestinians who don't want peace with Israel want to see a peace without Israel, who don't want a state next to Israel, but a state instead of Israel, they had an effective veto on Israel's expansion of the peace, circle of peace around it. I went around them. There is a formula for peace, but my view is because of the, the fact that the, the continuum, the persistent Palestinian refusal, which goes back a century, to recognize a Jewish state, a nation state for the Jewish people in any boundary, that persistent refusal persists. If we wait for them, we're not going to have peace. People are, said you have to work your way outside in, first inside out. First, peace with the Palestinians, peace with the Arab world. I think realistically it's going to be the other way around. And uh, a peace with the Arab world and then peace with the Palestinians. That's why there is such emphasis recently on Saudi Arabia and uh, as the most influential of Arab states. Uh, meanwhile, more than 200,000 children in Washington struggle with hunger, we are told. Actually, I think there are probably more children than that who struggle with obesity problems. But... Uh, this is, uh, according to Feeding America, a nonprofit hunger relief organization, a bill heard in the state Senate recently and in the state House of Representatives attempts to address the issue by establishing free meals for all public school students. The bill has bipartisan support, I'm afraid to say, with legislators from both sides of the aisle appearing as sponsors on House and Senate versions of the legislation. It's a basic need. We know that they'll be healthier, said Senator um, uh, the, uh, Representative Marcus Riccelli, Democrat of Spokane, the uh, sponsor of the House bill. With nutritious food, they'll be better in the classroom. There will be less disruptions. Riccelli said he was motivated to sponsor the bill in part after witnessing the hugely successful free lunch meal programs that the federal government implemented during the pandemic. During the pandemic, families didn't have to apply to be part of this program as free meals were insured for all students. Those measures have since been lifted. Now families who meet certain income-based criteria must fill out applications for free or reduced-price lunch. In October 2021, 46.8% of students that ate school lunches were receiving them free or at a reduced price, according to the Office of the Superintendent of public instructions. Supporters said that by ensuring free meals for all students in Washington, it will eliminate possible shame that could come from asking for or receiving a free lunch. The idea of the government's obligation to feed people, to feed young people, uh, uh, look, addressing the issue of hunger in America and addressing the healthiness and appropriateness of the food that people eat, okay. But the idea that it is the government responsibility to provide free meals, and once you provide free meals for half the students, you're going to end up providing sooner or later for all of them, which um, seems to me a, a trend that is going on not just in the state of Washington but across the country and one that ought to be counteracted. Um, and uh, this is one of those things that you, you, you look at the numbers 
and you really wonder what the future would bring. A, a federal program called the Community Eligibility Provision allows schools with a high number of low-income students determined based on their families' enrollment and supplemental nutrition programs to offer free meals to all students. During the 2022 legislative session, lawmakers passed legislation that expanded the benefits of the program to more and more schools. Sponsors of this uh, 2023 bill intend to take this uh, program one step beyond. We simply have less barriers and more kids eating food, Lockwood said. Uh, You could understand why this would be popular, but I think it's tough to uh, to actually view this as a positive idea or an appropriate development. Uh, then, then there is this. There were a number of comments that were made that were memorable at the uh, Tyree Nichols funeral. Uh, Al Sharpton made the memorable comment, you don't fight crime by becoming criminals yourselves which is profound and appropriate. But then there was this from uh, Representative Jamal Bowman, a member of the squad. Uh, Here's what he said on CNN about Tyree Nichols' death. Uh, This is clip 15. We have to introduce and pass the People's Justice Guarantee so community members can reimagine and restructure public safety in our country. The research shows we need a public health approach to public safety. You want to make us safer? Invest in poverty and ending poverty. Invest in housing. Invest in climate. Invest in education. That is how we make our country safer. What we're doing is adding more police and feeding the prison industrial complex. And that has to stop. Okay. Uh, Certainly, climate can be viewed as an important issue. But how does uh, investing in climate make our country safer from crime, which is a deep concern for most Americans? Uh, Next time, we'll take a look at the brand new film, big new film by M. Night Shyamalan. It's called Knock at the Cabin. Will I knock it? or endorse it. We will review that and much more next time Friday in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.